This is on. Welcome to episode number six. So yeah, it's, it is snowing over here on the Pacific Northwest. That sounds horrible. And, and so I'm watching that as I'm doing this with y'all. It's been a crazy week. I worked about a little bit of it. Got a flat tire and spent half the Friday on the side of a, the road next to the Lincoln Tunnel in New Jersey for any of our listeners out there. And then broke my finger on Sunday. So all oh, in all, a really positive weekend, everyone. <laughs> So now you're using generative AI, you're speaking and, and doing and everything in Slack and all those I'm, fancy things. I'm not real. This is actually <laughs> just an AI bot that I built. Everyone, Val.com, check it out. So <laughs> exciting. But you're still game. changing that tire. The real <laughs> use out, still on the side of the highway. Yeah, the General real cars use. don't come with uh, spares anymore is what we found. <laughs> I was actually, so I've been like producing these podcasts. I'm using Descript, a huge fan of it. And I just learned about the audio dubbing that you basically can, and you read 20 or 30 minutes of whatever, and then you could just basically type whatever you want. And it sounds exactly like to you. It is crazy. That is crazy to me. I didn't realize that we were that close. I'm not that close to these products. It blew me away. We were actually, I want to talk about this Andrew Mason thing. Yes. So like Canadian Thanksgiving is a different day. So I did nothing. And I'm aware that y'all have a special day and it was like really, it's bigger than Christmas or something, but I've never experienced it myself. Maybe I'm missing out. I don't know. You are. <laughs> you can yeah. come to New York or, or San Francisco and celebrate with us next year. You've got a plate at my house. That's what I offered. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Joe, what did you get up to? I have two little kids and everyone was sick. So oh, uh, me too. I just got to do a lot of work. So it was between them chilling. They're old enough that they could like watch movies and play iPad and stuff. It was nice. Got, got them stuff done. It was cool. We were it, just before the episode started, we were talking about Andrew Mason because Kevin has been using the script to edit out huge the fan. parts of this show before it gets published, which, which is most of it. And the result... It, it's Andrew, it's Andrew Mason who started Groupon to give you a sense and then started Detour. And as a result, D Detour was an audio tour company that I was obsessed with. And I actually almost bought it off of Andrew Mason. Really? Rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I met him. Oh, and, that's interesting. Uh, and it turned out it wasn't going to be a big, cool business. He ultimately, I think, sold it to Bose headphones or something. For how much? And not a lot. Like and, a few million bucks. But he, he, what he discovered is he discovered the audio technology that became Descript. And so his process of, yeah, we have to manage all this audio. It was like a, a huge slap. It's like one of those, Kevin, you remember last episode, we talked about two and a half years to find your stride. or what? I think they founded it in, I think it was like 2017 that yeah. Descript actually yeah. started. They, they spent so much time on Detour. And he was one of those founders that could just get funding from whoever, whenever he wanted, because he started Groupon. And it's crazy so that he went from Groupon, crazy marketing company to now yeah. productivity tool that's using AI. He's very open about how bad of a CEO he was at Groupon. And it's worth reading. He, he like showed up in a, like a horse suit one time at a board meeting. Like, I don't think, I, I think this is a story. And like, he just did not care. But by this point, the company had gone public. Because remember, companies were going, Groupon went public extremely quickly. Yep. And, uh, and so he was like, I was fired. 
just like super open about talking. I remember this. Almost nobody ever is in the industry. And, and then finally, I guess he got his group back working on the scripts. And here you are freaking out about the product and the background, which a lot of podcasters are. Yeah, it's great. Between Riverside, which does the local recording and the script, it takes me probably like an hour to publish an episode. What's really cool about the script is that it'll shorten up the pauses in between. So it seems like you have a lot better flow. And then another really cool feature is that it'll take out all the filler words when you say or repeat words or you use like a lot. It'll just automatically take it out of both the audio and the video automatically. And then it also takes the audio and the same thing that like an, an audio engineer would do and it makes it sound professional. So like the recordings that we're hearing right now, the audio is probably not great, but it'll turn out awesome. And it's all through this tool. It's pretty amazing. This and so what does it do on the, sorry, go ahead. After you, I was just saying this podcast is sponsored by Descript. Go for it. Yes. So what does it do on the audio cleanup? Is it doing basically search on the, it transcribes it, then does search and then literally just deletes the sentence, the, the word, or is it doing phonetic search? Do you know? It transcribes everything. Yep. And then you can, you could basically edit everything around using the text that it, it actually translated. But it also has a feature that you can remove words, which also shortens the video and the audio clip of that. And so you're essentially, you're manipulating the audio and video file with yep. text, which is really cool. So like you could even copy and paste like things that happen way later and you could put it, change the order and it's really cool. Yeah. It's very interesting what you can do there. We're playing around with a lot of this stuff at Val and some of the ever generative AI stuff. I'm really interested in this stuff. Super curious about them as a consumer model because $20 a month suggests yes, model is actually like a consumerish model. And if you have a consumerish model, you know the churn is your number one issue that you deal with all the time. And at $20 a month, it's like, how long is this LTD? How many people really want it? Is there like an enterprise deal, which is how like the direction most people go. So I'm, I actually just emailed Andrew Mason the other day for a separate thing, but I'd be curious to ask him. You just talk to him all the time. This is no, very no. random. I, there's a few people like that. I've actually, I was talking to the CMO of Zapier a couple of days ago, who is an old friend of mine from back in the early startups. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about Rich Barton and Rich Barton like Andrew Mason, or those people are my almost like startup heroes yeah. because they don't need to keep doing it. Like after, after Groupon, he did not need to do it again. He didn't need to do anything, but he kept at it. And then he failed on new tour yes. and kept going again. And Love that. Rich Barton, as if you know him, I think it's Expedia first and then Glassdoor, then Zillow. And you, he just keeps going with these power of the people businesses. I was suggesting that as a first time entrepreneur, you respect the young geniuses. Yes, you do. I get time entrepreneurs. You respect what this is a, like a model that, that I read a book in a book one time. You respect the old masters, the people that keep doing it over and over again. I was you wondering mean like us, right? Like us. Time will see. Time will prove it out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, do you guys have any like notable founders that you keep in contact with that you're friends with that have done some pretty crazy stuff? I have them on my cap table. I don't know that I'm friends that doesn't with count. them. That doesn't count. <laughs> they respond to my emails. Yeah. 
like you're adjacent, but, and also crazy, like what we have experienced is crazy. Kevin ship is crazy. Very crazy. It was, yeah. There is a pretty crazy story. Yeah. Cloud is a crazy story to me, but don't. And, and so what's crazy in, so the, the crazy news that's in the week right now in the news at the moment is this pipe, yeah, the founders so of the pipe thing. And so Kevin, talk to us about this. You've been obsessed with that. I'm interested in it. Too, but yeah, I have been obsessed with it. So it's, it, it's, it started with, there was a TechCrunch article that the three co-founders of pipe. So if anybody doesn't know what pipe does, they basically will lend you off of your reoccurring revenue. So say you have a monthly subscription business, they will give you that right up front. You, you charge $20 a month, they'll give you that yearly amount right up front. So you don't have to, essentially, you don't have to raise as much venture capital. And they did this in the zero percent interest environments. And so these lending uh, companies, there was a lot of hype around them, fintech in general. And what was crazy, like I, I saw them and I think I heard a, a, a few times, it's like they were one of the fastest growing companies ever. And I was like, this is actually a cool product, but this makes sense. Raise less venture capital. There's some risk that you have to pay them some interest, but this is like a service that makes a lot of sense to me. And then I was like, why isn't there something like this for marketplaces that I could use? But there's not. But what had this, the story goes is that they were super high flying. They raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And then just all of a sudden last week through three three co-founders, they all stepped out. Yeah. So that was the actual news. Then on Twitter, somebody post posted, which I, it's still alleged, hasn't been confirmed yet, but what they're alleging is that the founders or the CEO they took $60 million and they invested in a Bitcoin mining company. I don't know what that means, but they did that without the board's approval. They, they took a lot of personal loans from the company. I believe also without the board's approval, they were basically just misappropriating the actual money and they were having, then I believe as well, their growth is basically just stalled out completely. And that's what it was alleged. And then the tweet got taken down and then I inquired and the, the legal team of Pipe went after this guy to take it down and everything like that. And then there was just a TechCrunch article that came out, I think it was today, that they're trying to figure out exactly what happened. The company's basically like, like saying, yeah, they did invest in some Bitcoin company, but we, we can't confirm if it's that they actually lost the $60 billion or something like that. But the follow-up on this, I thought was even in, more interesting. There was a tweet from Jeff Richards, who is a general partner at GGUV Capital, and it basically says that the grifter area was very frustrating for builders. Grifters could raise a ton of money with little to no traction, sell Malibu home level of secondary and do it again nine months later. This era is officially over. It's going to be obvious who the builders are. So me, I'm thinking this is one of the first shoes to drop. There's a lot of companies that I think misappropriated funds, we're getting all the stuff in the crypto land, but now it's coming into the fintech round. I've heard rumblings of another company has done something like this. So to me, it's just, this is fucking crazy news. Kevin, another company where you know the name, but you just don't want to say it on the podcast, I believe. Yeah. Okay, go on. Okay, but yeah. what a major one that has raised yes. like $100 million, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Okay, got it. Who is the grifter par excellence, as far as you're concerned, of this generation? Who is the or grifter? drink from this phase? Anyone can answer. I'd be very curious who is the meta, the, the highest level of grifter that occurred during this era. Oh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Just crypto in general? 
I would say yes. And do anything. So for, I mean, like Adam, Adam Newman. SPF has got to be the. SPF? Michael Jordan of grifters, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be one. They, SPF, they, they specifically said in their contracts that they would not use the cash or the Bitcoin or whatever people they, they bought on their trading platform and they invested it into their hedge fund, which then just, just basically wasted a lot of it. And again, misappropriated, like it was their customers' funds. But I think that this, it sounds like with Jeff, he obviously knows a ton of this. I've also heard other rumblings from other VCs that it's like, there's a ton of shading dealings that happened because what you're able to do in this time with like venture was just so crazy was that you were able to raise crazy rounds and you could set your own terms. You could take secondary. So as Jeff mentioned, like Malibu, set Malibu home size of secondary. So that means people are taking 10 to $50 million off of a $200 million race, which is fucking crazy to be clear. Nobody needs that. But that's what, how crazy the market was. You had VCs yeah. that were willing to go and do this for founders. I would argue almost that it was the transition to Uber and Airbnb from 2008 to around 2012, where this started to happen, where all of a sudden there were these takeoff stories. Airbnb is not quite one of them. Airbnb grinded through a really long era, but then all of a sudden it was I don't know if you all, you all remember, but it was like a $2 million round. And then the next round was a hundred million. And at Uber, I remember it very clearly because I, we, they weren't, but I thought of, a, of them as a sister company Same. at the time. And it was 1.5, 6, 20, 50, hundred. And it was just like, it was going crazy and it was happening. Every crazy. Months. And so to me, that's where the transition occurred from the recession companies to the, oh my God, a new era is upon us. And this is when the wallets started opening. I don't know if this resonates with you at all. I think so, but I think we've been through these swings before, but I think that the founders taking so much secondary, how that's never happened before. You've never really, I don't remember anyways, like an era of founders actually misappropriating people's investors funds. Like going and spending, investing in $60 million off your balance sheet into a Bitcoin mining company, you should go to jail for that. If you did not get that approved by your board and they potentially lost that, I hope these people actually go to jail. That I couldn't even imagine. Also, this is actually maybe a, a little bit of a der derail, but I know that other people that have used cash off their balance sheet to invest it in higher interest vehicles, yeah. but they were slightly more risky. I've always been extremely, I'm not going to, just going to stay in the checking account. Yeah. Maybe do that. 2% savings account within, like I use SVB, but that's as far as I'll go. I've seen people that actually have invested in the stock market and all that kind of crazy stuff that VCs don't see, but I've never seen it reach this level where you're buying like Bitcoin companies and you're taking big personal loans for yourself. That's fucking crazy. Is anyone familiar with that FedEx story? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Julian. I was going to say, yes. I hear what you have to say because you came from the VC world. What is the standard exactly? Because I'm like Kevin. I've always been that way. I'm like Kevin. I, I, I thought the standard rule was you keep it in a checking account or a money market account at SVB. And then when you get a little, and then when you get bigger and bigger, you move to a cash, uh, some type of money management account from like 
Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, or one of the bigger brokerage firms was the way I, or JP Morgan. That's the only thing I've ever seen. I've been pitched a lot on Twitter and via email via a company called Meow that keeps coming after me. I think originally it was crypto. Now it's treasury bonds, which those are not bad. Yeah. So I think they pivoted a little bit. Treasury bonds are safe, but you still take some. I'm old fashioned. It's in my money market at SVB and my checking at SVB. And I don't really want to play around it. Where I was going with this is I remember the Fed, old FedEx story where they were down to a couple months of cash. They went to Vegas and even put it all in black or red and doubled the bank account. It's startup lore, but it's apparently true. So I think. I have Stuff some like questions this. about that story. I think that it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, I, I think he he did that. He won one week's worth of payroll. So, like, how can you save a company with one week's sort of payroll? Doesn't make any sense to me. Got to pay those pilots. What's the closest you guys have gotten to not making payroll, but then got the wire to hit? And that was uh, a great question. <laughs> I just feel like every financing operator was a little bit like that. It was never, oh, actually, I do know the story. I remember. It's, it's actually a really memorable one. It's between the $6 million A at Breather and the, wait, and the $20 million B. Right around that time, just like everybody knows, because now there's this thing that someone on an Andreessen Horowitz mailing list, Joe, you probably get them was saying like, I don't understand. I just got an, a new employee. And then days later, they're getting phishing scams to their text messages saying, I'm the CEO. Could you send me some Amazon gift certificates or whatever? And, and right around this time, there is no financial control. It's early on in the business there, when there's no financial controls is where any crazy thing can happen. I've essentially no operations people. I have no finance people. And I've got probably a couple, two, $3 million in the bank. And randomly one day, there's like a mishandling of funds where we just think we've spent this much and we actually spent this much. And I have to bring everybody, my whole exec team into a, a, a conference room, a breather space. And I say, okay, you remember I said we have 12 months runway. Actually, it just turns out I'm wrong. We have six from one day to the next. And there was this insane moment of panic at the level of all of the super junior executives, including me, by the way. And three weeks later, I get a message from Dave Moran, who started Path and who is early Facebook Connect and all those other things. I think everybody probably knows Dave or knows of Dave in this call. Okay. Yep. And I had never heard from Dave before in my life. And, but he was a, a legend to me. He was like a design legend and I really respected him. And it was like one of my first people who was like real Silicon Valley who had ever met me. And he was like, Hey, I, I would love to, I would love to meet you. And so you do what anyone in Canada does at that time, which is that you say, Oh, I'm actually happy to be in town next week. We should meet then. And. They say, okay, and then you book a flight right there to be in town at the time that you say that you're going to be in order to not appear desperate. And so I go into, it's like a, in Soma in San Francisco, I go into Dave's office, which I think is like the end of the era of the path office. This is before I met you, Joe, but it was right around that time, maybe a year. Yeah. And I go into Dave's office, the, some of the past people are there, I think. 
and I meet in his gigantic conference room, which is at the top of yeah. one of the tall Soma buildings. And we just talk for like an hour, but it's almost like a just shooting the shit. It's not really topical at all. And I'm like, I'm not really clear why this meeting is happening. But Dave Warren wanted to meet me and I really respected him. And I leave and across the street, there's a Starbucks. And I'm like, not really sure exactly what just happened. And I go into the Starbucks and I think I order a cup of coffee or something. And I get a DM from Twitter from Dave Morin. And he's like, oh, in case it's not clear, I want to invest. And I was like, oh my God. And so that $1 million check, it was the first one that ever, that Slow Ventures ever wrote, was written at a higher up from the A, saved my company because I would not have been able to get enough results to, to get a series B and it was the most happens, the most amazing kind of happenstance. How much, how much more runway did that give you? So you got six and that gave you what? I don't read it's a long time ago. It was like 2015, 2014. So it's hard for me to say. And you're a Canadian company. So you're paying people in Canadian dollars. So it's probably 24 months of runway. Yeah. It was about the amount that I thought I didn't have. And so. I think I felt like I had $900,000 less than I actually had. And he wrote a $1 million check into the company, effectively, basically saving the company without even knowing that he did it. And it continued to grow all as a result of that. So that's the, even though that's not quite non-missing, making payroll, that's definitely the most out of the blue angel story, but like the Evernote story a little bit that I've ever had. Joe, I'm curious, how close have you been? We were not going to make the next payroll. Oh, shit. And it was over the holidays. It was like, so I had to go to everyone and be like, hey, we had a term sheet signed. We were doing, it was all in process. It was just taking a really long time. This was our series B. So we were, we were, it was going to happen, but it was just, the timing was weird with the holidays. And luckily it hit right before the next payroll ran, but we went to make the next payroll. And I had to like tell everyone. Hey, if, oh, if you don't see your direct deposit, don't worry. <laughs> Very stressful though. You told them we were, like, we were like 20 people. So it wasn't like we were crazy huge, but it was like enough people and enough drama that it was not a fun time. In case anyone is listening to this, that is not an entrepreneur and there's more like on the sidelines, but thinking about it, I want to be like these people, which you should not. <laughs> no, you <laughs> should. There should be more entrepreneurs and less employees. I believe that in my bones is the thing you don't miss. We all know that. So we're kind of thinking about, uh, thinking about it. But payroll is just the thing you don't miss. Everything else you can fuck up. But if you miss payroll, that's it. You're done. I actually what have if- a sim- similar story to Joe. I think two financings with ship. So getting our A and getting our B were in the same position. It The financing round just took so too long to close and it was within weeks of not being able to make it you, you always think every single and it's even, even to this day you always think that so if you've raised a venture round like probably the first i don't know if the market's good probably i'd say you're going to get term sheets within six weeks or something like that if you're actually going to raise and then the closing will take i don't know but another six weeks at least but sometimes that could go on for eight or even my last round at Airhouse. I think that the lawyers were just so backed up with all this scams that all these companies were running, <laughs> get financing that it took so long to close. And it took, I think it took an extra month and you plan for that. And so it was similar to Joe uh, as far as just the financing term sheets were signed. 
But it doesn't matter until you get the money in the bank. And also people walk away, VCs walk away from term sheets all the time as well. Yeah. So during this, like during the grifter era, they didn't, is my understanding. But now they are, I heard about yes. that. I don't remember what private, but it was some sort of private ecosystem where people have said, oh yeah, people are walking away from term sheets and it will start happening again. And it really presses people to have to really be working the deal all the way to the end instead of, yeah, I got it. I'm double oversubscribed. And just, yeah, don't rely on your lawyers to push. You no. need to be the ones, but that's a really big lesson. Like they have so many other things on their plate. You think you're paying them a lot of money to close this deal and they're going to deal with the other lawyers from the VC firm, but you got to keep the gas down and be pressuring both sides. Because also it's lawyers, they get paid hourly as well. So they're incentivized to actually drag it out for as long as possible. So you have to realize that as well and really just push everybody to close it. Because as in, it's in, not in your best interest, obviously, uh, you want to get rent back to running the company, but also the VC, the VCs want you to get rent back to running the company as well. See, so you, you're in this, sometimes the lawyers go back and forth and they'll take extra long or whatever. Maybe they do it in good faith, but I've always been extremely just not, I just don't have the process. It just seems wasteful to me. It's all, we're all like going on the same terms, but yet like it costs what, like a financing round costs like. 30 to 60 K to close and lawyer fees. And it's just, yeah, they make you pay it and you have to pay your lawyers for your time. And it's aren't all companies be standard now. Shouldn't read one of the growth partners at Sequoia said, had a tweet one time that I will never forget because it resonated with me a lot. I wanted, was curious as to if you feel the same is that the lawyer that you first get when you start in venture. And I know mine, my guy's name is Adam Safkin, and I was introduced to him through actually Greg Eisenberg, who some of you may know. And, and he was a junior partner at a Canadian firm, but one of the ones in New Venture. And try as you might, Andrew's tweet is like, no matter what happens to a founder, they will fire people, they'll change businesses, they'll pivot, they will always keep that first lawyer. And I see Andy is, is nodding. I don't know if this resonates with you, but it's just like you feel like everyone else is a mercenary, but this first lawyer that you had back in the day is the lawyer that you always want to keep. Yeah, I still use that first lawyer. He does follow me on Twitter and he's probably listening to this podcast right now. And I think the best piece of advice I've got to anybody who's working with their lawyer going through a financing, it's he who emails them and yells at them the most is the one who gets closed the fastest. It's totally true. It's crazy. And we are like good friends at this point. So do you yell at e and email him? Incessantly 100%. Good. He hates me, but I pay him. I definitely do this thing. I call the lawyer and I yell at him and I'm just like, this is bullshit because ABC thing. I think a lawyer often is known to be, and it's what I will, it's actually what I wish a venture investor would be, but isn't to me. I wish that they were just someone that you could rant and scream at and be like, that fucking bad thing just happened. And I need to talk to somebody about it. And I trust you, but I have almost never had a venture investor be that way. And I have never felt that the relationship was open enough. Yeah. It doesn't have a relationship. Because you need their next money. 
I found that when they run out of money for you because they're a seed stage company or something, they're a seed stage fund and they're not writing checks into your growth company anymore, that's when you can finally trust them, but not before. <laughs> Joe, what's your experience in all this? <clears throat> yeah, I was thinking about it. Our first lawyer was fine at Clout, but he had a much bigger client. He had, I think he had Airbnb and we had started around the same time and they, we had traction, they had real traction. So I just was not getting the response I was hoping. We were definitely clearly second priority at best. So I did make a switch and I've had that second lawyer now on the third company and, and can't imagine not working with them. And so yeah, the, while you the, were managing, you, you're close to payroll, to not being able to make payroll. <clears throat> I was wondering how you managed your psychology as you were doing this. Because you have to do it. You can't freak out in front of your employees. You can't freak out basically to anyone at all. There's not a lot of people that could really relate to your situation. I was wondering how you managed from a day-to-day -day basis, a day-to-day -day basis to stop yourself from freaking out. Yeah, that was, it was about 18 months in the cloud and company was starting to get traction and it had been a grind and hard, but. It was mostly me for, there wasn't really a team. There was a year where it was just me. And then we started adding people and it started growing fast. And even though it had been hard, it had been fun through it all. That was the first time I remember thinking like, this is not fun. Yeah. Like this entrepreneurship is more, more than I had imagined and more challenging and more emotionally damaging than I knew I was getting into. There was a lot of drama around our deal. We had term sheets that people walked away from. I signed a term sheet that I walked away from. Um, shit. And it was just like, it was like in a hurricane and the company was growing really fast too and like starting to get press in an aggressive way. So it was just a lot. And it became unclear. Yeah, you like to think of yourself as you're the tornado, you're the hurricane as the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I felt like I was actually stuck in the hurricane. Yeah. And I remember because it was over Christmas break and it was like, so the world was stopping or winding down, but I was still trying to get this deal done. And I had a little bit of time to reflect on what was going on. And it was that first moment of thinking like, shit. I don't know if th this is rough. It's funny because I've known a lot of these stories because I was in social before I actually started businesses. And so, because I would write book about it and I was that whole movement of pod camp and so on. And I was blogging at that time. So clout was a big part of that ecosystem. And as a result of that company to me has always held a special magic. And later I read a lot of the stories. And so I know that stuff that you're talking about through having read like the Microsoft deal or something that almost happened and all these other different elements. But in the background, now you're saying to me, you didn't feel like you were in control at all. How did you manage to hold the rails, so to speak, as it was all happening and prevent yourself from, I don't know, not sleeping at all or like collapsing, yeah. quitting or whatever your version of getting it to stop would be? Yeah, I was just falling forward. And funny thing, I grew up boxing. Like that was like a sport. My dad's from Cuba. So that's the national sport there. And I grew up in Las Vegas. So boxing was a big deal. So like getting punched in the face was actually like a, 
and staying in the ring through that was something that I reflected back on. Um, but I, yeah, never thought about quitting. I just thought of, oh shit, this is way harder, way more intense, way crazier than I imagined. And, the, and I had never. Yeah. It, I'm curious because I definitely, at my first company, I thought I'm never going to do this again. Right. <laughs> Did you? We all do. <laughs> I promise I, I would never do I this. I don't. I, I will want to always do this. So yeah, Kevin, this I, way, I, yeah. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. I'm curious about your take on this. Even when at the terrible times, Shep, there was not one point. I was like, this is so much more fun than working for a big company. I'm like, fuck this. I'm just going to continue taking, doing this. There's, and hopefully I'll get better at it <laughs> over time as well. Like, I, I, I don't know what your guys is all your background before, but I started my career. I was a software developer and I worked for Boeing and just boring ass companies. And it's just like, nobody cares about their work. It's not fun at all. You're not building anything new. It, it takes you forever to get a new product out and just like creating something from nothing. It just has that, that it's still to this day, it's just something magical. And I want to continue doing this. Andy, you're a finance bro. Is that right? I was, but this, the last time I worked at a place with, I don't know, more than 40 people was 2009. We went bankrupt at Lehman in 08. I worked at Barclays for a year in 09. So yeah, it was 09. And I haven't worked at a big company in so long. I do think it would be nice to know what it's like. Like, I'd love to know what it's like to work at Google. Maybe for like a month or two. Oh, it'd be so boring. At Google? Come on. I interview people at Google and I've where I have in the past. And let me tell you, it's crazy, the people that work at Google. You always meet them at parties and you'll be like, you're not special. That's because you, you, it's a special company. Yeah. So in your mind, to me, you're like, the people who work there must be genius, special people. They're really not. And that's the part that's baffling to me. It is kind of destroys the mythology of these special magical companies where incredible geniuses work on hard problems. Except for the people that, that work at Descript. Yes. That's, a, that's a magical product. Look, I, I don't, I, I just, <laughs> I don't mean it in the same regard. I think we all interview people who work at a large companies, but I, I do wonder what it would be like if I worked at Google in the Nest division and I decided I wanted to build Nanit. And they oh, gave me terrible. the resources. And we had five MEs and five EEs and like a full sourcing arm or Apple. I think, Kevin, you sent around to our group text, the founder of Dropcam, who then went on to build sat the new satellite GPS feature that's in the iPhone. And just him talking, it's him talking about what it was like at Apple building it. And I just don't know what it's like, but you do have so much resources to build such an amazing product. So I think it would be a cool experience, but for the rest of us, we're just going to, we're going to do what we can to make the impossible possible. And one day, maybe I'll work at a big company for a year and see what it's like. I grew up working class, is that right? I grew up what? Working class? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. My dad was a dealer at Caesar's Palace and my mom was a cocktail waitress. Wow. I grew up in Las Vegas. What an amazing <laughs> story. Um, That's awesome. And the biggest company I worked at prior to Clout was 10 people and I was not the boss. I never managed anyone. I'd never worked anywhere. I'd never met an investor. I had never even met anyone who worked at Google, not even like the janitor from Google, like nobody. Yeah. So when 
cloud started growing, that was like a massive challenge. I had never managed anyone. Every day past 10 people was the biggest company I ever worked at. And when resumes would come in from people at Google, I would immediately go into sales mode of, oh my gosh, this person from this legendary company wants to come here. I'm just going to sell. I didn't know how to interview them. Yeah. yeah, You learn, they're really incredibly talented people. I've done deals with Microsoft and Walmart and all these legacy companies that are filled with incredibly talented people, super bureaucratic systems. Right. Yeah. It's it, like, like you, what your story resonates with me a lot. My, all, everyone that I know, no, no one had a college degree. Everyone was high IQ, pretty high IQ, but never had a college degree for some reason. And we all worked in call centers, which is what you do if you're from the town, the city that I'm from. And, and then one day, because I started a podcast, it literally about 18 years ago, seems crazy to say, but that's what got me started on the internet. And then just, I, I was like, oh, the, the world is bigger than this local town, right? And then all of a sudden it, it felt like I had more ability to do things than I thought that I had. And I never looked back. So it, but looking at it now, I never felt, and even today, I don't feel like I could ever be a VP at some company. And when I think about LinkedIn and all these people that are receiving recruiter uh, requests to interview and so on, that just doesn't happen to me. So to me, entrepreneurship, it doesn't even feel like a choice anymore. I'm just like, I have to do this because no one else is going to do it for me. And so it feels like my, even though my path is unknown, that the fact that I'm going to have to do it myself is a given. I learned how to be unhirable really early. One of my best friends in high school, both of our parents were always on our case to get jobs. So we would go apply and get jobs together and then see who could get fired the fastest. So my record is four hours. I made it four hours at a dry cleaner before I got fired in high school. Why'd you get fired at four hours? Were you the chemical guy? <laughs> the dry cleaner is dangerous. Everything's like high and there's chemicals and they're training us. And I kept expressing different ways I thought you could do things. And they, they were like, the lady literally gave me a $20 bill and just said, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Forever. Goodbye. Yeah. And this was 20 years ago before those chemicals mm -hmm. were safe. Right. Yeah. You were breathing them in. No problem. <laughs> so does it change how you treat your employees because of where you came from? Yeah, I think so. I don't, and it's a lot of this new company I'm building is I don't look at degrees and like pedigree as something that really matters and really try. And I've seen it in the best people I've worked with. They're, they don't look the best on paper. Yeah. So I love taking bets on people. I do, I do too, man. That really connects with me. And I have found that run, if you run a company remote, the only way to do it is with really high ownership people. But when you mm, find right. those really high ownership people, you could tell it's really palpable that you can give them a tremendous amount of responsibility, even if they have never done it before. And it's when you find those people, those people end up making your company as a whole. I don't know For if sure. someone that comes to mind, yeah, oh, yeah. I can see you hearing, feeling mm. that there isn't somebody that comes to mind for you. Of course. Yeah. A bunch. Yeah. So I'm curious, coming, you know, you're in Canada, you're not in a tech epicenter in any way yeah. to start. Like, how did you meet your first investor? Like, how did you make that jump from the call center and writing to like... I got really... I will say that... So for... It's definitely a longer story, but I, the short version of the story is I think I was always a skilled communicator. 
but I think I became a skilled communicator because I had to improvise Dungeons and Dragons games for four hours every <laughs> Saturday afternoon. And after doing that for like 30 years or whatever, you eventually become a pretty skilled improviser and communicator. And so over time, first with the podcast uh, in 2004, when I started it, then someone said, hey, you got a pretty good voice. They meant not just like the voice, the radio voice itself, but also you have a way of talking that resonates with people. And that skill of communication has just brought me up the ladder gradually. And I met investors, Canadian venture capital investors, while I was kind of a social media influencer in 2007, 2008 or whatever in the clout era. Do you remember the clout score? <laughs> the what? Your clout score. Mine was low. It was never like, I was always jealous of someone else with clout score. How was it? Was it? That's, that's the whole, that's the whole gamification of it. I don't know what it was. Ego, ego crack. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in short, it, it happened because, because random people took a bet on me, but it also because of my network of people that I knew in social, because I had written books that had that other people had read other things. It was like my first venture investor. My first angel was Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk. And so I was able to, I had all those people on speed dial. I still do because I knew them from the social world, not because I knew them as an entrepreneur. And then I was able to make the bridge that way. Because it is, you're bringing up a really good point, which is that all of us here today in this big square are very highly networked inside a venture, but I started not networked at all. Sounds like you right. did too. And I have, it, to me, it is, it's a given now. I'm wondering how, what kind of advice you would give someone who needed to accelerate their network because it's obviously a huge advantage. Cold LinkedIn. No, do not do that. <laughs> A cold email actually does work very well, though. A very targeted email. My advice would just be to continue trying to, to continue networking, especially especially when you're younger. I wish I would have. So I, I I started down this like venture path in my like mid to late twenties. I wish I would have done it when I was like early twenties or even right out of school and just came to the Bay area and just networked with people. It would have been make it, made things a lot easier, but I think it just takes time and it's been a lot of luck too, right? You got to put yourself in those situations. You meet that one person, you drive with them, you may really create a friendship with them. And then they introduce you to this person who introduces you to this person. It's just, it, but also it's a grind and you just need to continue doing that. You need to fake those, yeah. those, those plane trips to the Bay area, like Julian did, but you need to do whatever you got to do. And then over a year, over years, like over a 10 years is, wow, look at the network that I created, but it, it takes time and you, but, and you need to be intentional about it as well. You need to be going after and trying to build a network. I'd say that the best way to do it is to go after peers. So not necessarily people who are out of your, um, your level. I think like for me, what worked very well is that, so I'm actually Canadian as well. I moved from Vancouver to San Francisco because I actually hated the Canadian venture ecosystem and it was extremely hard to do everything there. Agreed. And I was like, let's make this a little easier. And I, my, my network was people that were just in San Francisco. They didn't have 
really any pedigree. They were probably working for other startups. And then a lot of them started starting their own companies. And then I just worked around that. And I, but I really found like people that are at the same level, those are the ones that you need to go and network with. Just, I, I would say, look at us today together, the four of us here. Like I'd say we're all peers, right? We're companies that are at very similar stages. We have a lot to relate about and talk about versus going and trying to network your way up to Gary V today or something like that. He's not going to have time for you. He's not going to be relatable to you and all that. So it just, but it takes a lot of time and you need to be intentional about it. Yeah. Actually, Joe, thinking on it now, I think I was more networked than the average first time entrepreneur. And you, even though I was in Canada, because I had written a New York Times bestseller with another relatively famous kind of social dude back in the day, who I know listens to this podcast, hi, Chris. And, and so all these people, we all were like a circle of people that all went to each other's events. So actually, I don't know that I was under network. I think I started later at a later age, but I started with a better network and praise Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. In the sense that if I wasn't networked, I don't know where to begin. It is a huge, Kevin knows in Canada, tons of people are like, but I'm meeting all these people in Toronto. You just want to, you just want to slap the shit out of them. And, and you do verbally. You just did. <laughs> Andy, my, how did you make the jump? Everything in my life was total chance. I graduated from college. I took a job at, I, I applied for a bunch of jobs at banks because I was a finance major and I didn't know what else to do. I, I vaguely knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but had no clue. And I was applying for jobs in New York and I got a job offer at Lehman Brothers in Palo Alto. I had heard of Palo Alto, but I didn't know anything. So I went there. And things were looking pretty bad in 08. And the headhunter called me and said, do you want to work at a venture firm? And at that point, I was like, I just want to work anywhere. I want to work somewhere that can pay me. <laughs> and I kept interviewing. I kept interviewing. I kept interviewing. I think this went for six solid months. You had to meet everyone at the entire firm. And the day Lehman went bankrupt, they called me and made me an offer. To this day, I don't know if it's because they felt bad for me or because they actually liked me. And I got to work at a large venture firm and they're one of the older ones. It was 2009. Everything was more conservative back then. You looked for director level people with technical backgrounds to back. And I knew very quickly I wanted to be a founder, but didn't see anyone who looked like me. And then a guy named Jim Barnett ended up being an EIR and we had actually had similar backgrounds. He had started in finance. He had started a couple companies. Jim is, was most recently CEO of Glint and now he's CEO of Whisk. And he was paired. We just liked each other. And so he, I would whiteboard with him company ideas. And that's how it all happened. I realized I wanted to go do this. I went to business school. I probably should have done Glint with him because he's just this amazing, incredible founder and CEO which are not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. And I got out of business school. I, I spent a year doing something else and then started Nanit about six weeks later. And I don't know if I could ever work anywhere else, but it would be nice to have some stability every once in a while. No, come on. <laughs> this is way more fun. Yeah, but I say that. I say this and I said this at Nanit. I'm never doing this again. Mm. And I took, I don't know, two months off and started a company. So in between the two, and so I say this now, and I'll probably end up doing this till I'm 65, 70. One of the, I'll be that old guy starting tech companies. We're what, living to 150, so. Plenty of time. The, 
this new technology. Andrew Mason's going to start extend your life something after this. Starting companies until I'm 150. That's great news. Thank you so much. I really, what is resonating is that all of these stories are about, I just had to go out and meet people and I had to get it started. It's so tough when you talk to a first time entrepreneur and you say the, the two things that I'm sure are super demoralizing. One is, oh, don't worry. This is just your first company. Your second one will be better, which I'm sure everyone has heard. What a shitty thing to say to someone. Just the worst. You're saying the thing that you're currently dedicating your life to is a night. Is practice. Your current marriage is the worst. Don't worry. You'll have a better shot at the next one. That's what it sounds like. And then the second one is, oh, you just got to go out there and meet people and your network's going to get better while being true. It also is, yeah, but I fucking need money now. And that's the thing that's challenging. I, there's a, I'm reading a book. It's actually pretty good. It was, it's by one of my angel investors, Freddie, the co-founder of Okta. And it's called Zero to One. Great book. And anyone who's sitting here thinking about entrepreneurship, I actually recommend reading it. I didn't know the Okta story incredibly well, but apparently after the Series A, it was a total shit show and Ben Harwis gave them some real advice. And it went public and ended up being this multi-billion dollar outcome. But he literally has a checklist. Is entrepreneurship right for you? And like the first 10 pages, it's, are you good with uncertainty? Are you good with ambiguity? Are you good with not knowing where your next meal is going to come from? And then he does early in the book, he interviews Freddie Lundy, and I may be butchering his name, but he's the founder of ServiceNow. And nobody here probably knows what ServiceNow is because it's like it's sold to large enterprise IT departments. Dude, it's hundreds of billion dollars. Isn't that right? Huge. Yeah, it's a hundred billion dollar company, maybe a hundred fifty billion dollar company. And he didn't start his first company until he was 50. I, and there's like this. I always tell you this, Julie. I used to tell you this in our old CEO group. It doesn't matter. Like, how old you are, how non-network nope. you are. If you want to do it, you can do it. You just have to figure it, it out. It you have and have the per- per- perseverance to go through it. Yeah. I think the that's a that huge I find block. the most motivating about entrepreneurship is you get better as you go in many industries, including in books and um, in all these different industries. If ever you decide you, you want to take a profession in the arts, you're going to become an actor or something. In all those other professions, you actually just get, your shots get smaller and smaller as you go. If you've written like a couple bad books, like the likelihood that your third book is just going to like somehow take off, like it's not really the same, but your shots at entrepreneurship get better and better as you go. And it's one of the things that keeps me motivated. I think I, I know quite a lot about running a company today, even though I've never run a SaaS business, strictly speaking, but you actually get really good at it. We talked about the founders of Stripe the other time we were together. In fact, Stripe is their second or third company. It is not their first, even though you sometimes think because of the mythology that it is. is. Do you guys encourage your friends to start companies? No. I do all the time. I encourage everyone. I do. Joe? I definitely encourage employees. I find when I'm recruiting somebody, if I ask what their goals are, Often the best people will say, I'm hoping to start my own thing. And I tell them I want to be their first investor and come learn. You're going to be in the fire. And in a year or two years, I'll write the first check and I'll make the intros. And I've have 10 or 12 companies that are from employees that I've backed. 
I have say the exact same pitch. I asked that question and say, come learn for two years and then I'll write your first check and make your introductions to VCs. I think we have five spinoffs now so far from Nanit and I'm really proud of it. And we're still going. So it's super interesting. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I think I've got six or six or seven from Shep. I think it's a great way to learn. I encourage people, if you're not ready to actually start something right now, go work for, I'd say a series A is probably like the best stage to, to go. To, you're still early enough where you're still trying to find product market fit. You're still iterating and still talking to customers. You're not hyperscaling. And so you can learn a lot of stuff that will be applicable. See, there is, there's just a lot of risk and uncertainty unless you're with like a really experienced team. So the chances that nothing works at all are higher than like a series A company. But if you want to go and be an entrepreneur, I think the best way to learn is to go to a smaller company. I, I discourage all my friends. I hate with my smart friends. Hopefully some of them are listening that are working at these like series D or public companies, soon to be public companies. And they're just like, they're just doing reorgs all fucking day. Yeah. And that's all they're doing. And I'm like, you're wasting your, let's, yeah, you get a lot of money and you have a stable quote unquote job, especially given all the layoffs that have happened. But it's like, you could be doing so much more. Like you could be creating something. You could be at an early, early, earlier stage company, having real ownership, creating real stuff to solve people's customers' problems. Or you could start something yourself. Like, I'll help you go put together a $2 million round with your experience and all of this stuff. Like, yes. it's not that hard. There is, it, it, I, I did a back, cha back channel reference, which we all uh, as entrepreneurs are very good at. We're very good at back channel referencing. And I call, this is an anonymized story about a person I interviewed for a product role. And then in, in interviewing them, I did a back channel to a CEO that they had worked with. And this CEO says, how many people do you have? Like, well, how big is your business? I said, oh, it's my new business and it's only 15 or 20 or something. And he said, this person should absolutely not work for you. I said, oh. <laughs> I said I'm, I'm on a level with you. This person needs to learn product from a great product business, Yeah, not in your company. They are sharp. But they need to learn it at a real product business. They need to be, go be a PM at Square or somewhere. Years later, they can be the first PM. First PM. I just revealed a little bit more than, but not too much, but I don't want to get any more detail than that. And in short, it's true for a lot of things. It's especially true for marketing. You put yourself in the fire in marketing and it's really good. You'd be in the fire in a lot of different ways. Product can go so wrong in early stage companies. It's the one place where I would encourage someone to hire experienced versus to hire some random dude who is just going to try and get it right. That would just be my perspective. Hey, I told you that. Did you? Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I literally told you all of that. What's my advice now? It's great. I would love to see the four of us start a company together, be quad CEOs. I think we oh, could, would we could, you would be mischievous. It'd be a mess though. I think, I think we have very strong personality types and we all tend to probably like to take control. And it, I think that it would end in not a great thing. You need to, Joe's going to box us. He's going to beat yeah, right. us up. Yeah. I actually don't know. I think it could be very interesting. Julian would be like key communicator in chief. Okay. I feel like I would, I feel like Joe would be our founder. Yes. Kevin would be our marketer. And I'd be oh, somewhere, 
why I think you're amazing. Kevin is an operator. Operator so, slash marketer. Yeah. And I'd be operator slash marketer slash product. <laughs> a lot of overlap. So sounds like it'll work. Yeah. yeah. This sounds like a clusterfuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joining in this company. Come on, Kevin. <laughs> we'll call it the STDU Inc. <laughs> That's our time, everyone. Uh, That's it. That's an hour. We're playing to stay tuned. But Thanks for listening, everybody. Episode six in the book. Nice chatting. And keep your browser keep... up. See you guys. Browser open. Bye. Bye bye. Hey, yeah, we keep it real and we bring you the facts. It's the second time founders podcast. Talking tech news. The show is a must. Not some billionaire trying to sell you their book. We're coming from a real place. Plenty ups and downs. Got some insights. Join the discussion now. We being honest and raw. Giving you real talk. We've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more. The second time founders podcast. More building, less talk.